This afternoon can be found in Isaiah 42, the verses 1 through 7. And you can find that on page 832 of your pew Bible. Isaiah 42, 1 to 7. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The sermon we're sharing this afternoon was preached by Reverend Ian Wildeboer in Mercy, um, the Mercy Christian Church in a new church plant in Hamilton East. And he did that in September, shortly after the church opened. And as we read the text for today, Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, I'd like you to keep the theme in mind. And the theme is stories of mercy from the life of Jesus. Who is this man who forgives sins? And he has three points And you can see those points as we read through the chapter. He confronts the self-righteous. He comforts the broken-hearted sinner. And he confounds the populace. We'll now read Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house. And sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet. And anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who that, what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, saith, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 
and the other 50. And when they had nothing, And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but the woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Loved ones in Christ, over the past few weeks at Mercy Church, we've considered stories of mercy in the life of Jesus. To be sure, you can't read scripture unless you see it as one big story of God's mercy to undeserving people. If mercy is God's love shown in kindness and compassion to those who do not deserve it, well... That's the story from the beginning. It's a story of mercy, a story of God's grace. The Old Testament is a tour de force of God's mercy. He was patient and kind with his people. But it also built up an anticipation. There would be a child born who would be holy and a merciful Savior. We read in in, uh, Isaiah 42, 1 to 7, as an example of this. He will, we learn, bring justice to the nations. He will not break a bruised reed. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will open the eyes of the blind, set captives free, release from dungeon those who sit in darkness and years past. Years passed, 700 years passed. Then he came. And when we meet Jesus on the pages of the New Testament, we're not disappointed. He's a man so full of mercy, story after story display this. We have one of those stories this afternoon. And what we learn in these stories, and what we will see in this story, is the summit of God's mercy. Do you know what the ultimate goal of mercy is? The mountain peak of mercy to us is what? Forgiveness. As a 17th century Catholic English poet, Alexander Pope once wrote, to err is human, to forgive is divine. It's divine because ultimately 
It's divine prerogative. It flows from the heart that loves us while we were yet sinners that he would forgive us. And that mercy is so poignantly displayed in our text. We're going to visit this story looking at it through three different angles. The Pharisee, Simon, and the woman in the crowd. And the question the crowd asks is this, who is this man who even forgives sin? We know the answer. His name is Jesus. But let us consider the mercy that unfolds in this passage. In the first place, the first thing that Jesus does confronts the self-righteous. The man of mercy, the man of mercy confronts the merciless. I went to Google for the definition of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness or self-righteous is someone who is characterized by certainty, unwarranted though it be, that he or she is morally superior. Enter Simon the Pharisee. In our story, Simon, we learn, invites Jesus to his house. This is not a Simon practicing what we learn in Rosaria Butterfield's book, that the gospel comes with a household key. He's not inviting Jesus into the house to show him warm hospitality. Bathed in the richness of God's love, listening to the words of truth and life flowing from the mouth of Jesus? No, none of that. The Pharisee had already, the Pharisees had already made their case. They did not like him. You can find this out already in the early chapters. And by chapter 11 of Luke, they want to rid the earth of Jesus. And there was no love displayed. One from this number, still in Galilee, invited Jesus to his home. Mercifully, Jesus went. He knew the malice, the insincerity. The purpose of this visit was to expose him. I was told from a young age by my mother, learn to be the least. Jesus had learned this in his childhood, and it defined him. He went. He reclined at table. Usually there are couches, so you were off the floor. The feet away from the table, arguably because the feet were very unsanitary. Hence the feet washing. Except... Simon missed this part. Still, this was going to be an evening affair, as the Pharisees were recognized in the community, and Jesus was seen as a rabbi, much loved by the people. It was a pretty big event. Not surprisingly, the doors were open for the general public to wander in. There comes a woman from the streets who was known. She was called a sinner. There was a public nature to her sins, which is tantamount to her being a prostitute. She was seen as a reprobate, despicable, and not worthy of entry. Had the Pharisees policed the door there with spiritual bouncers, she would not have slipped in. 
She was everything the Pharisees despised. How could he allow such a vile creature to enter his sanctified dwelling? She came in under the shadow, as it were. She came in with one purpose, to meet the Savior, the Redeemer of her soul, and to show her love for him. You need to realize that she was already forgiven. Verse 47, her sins have been forgiven. That's what drove her here. The Greek is in the perfect tense. That means it was an action completed in the past and has effect in the present. We do not know how. But like you, she heard a message. She was attracted to the grace. She learned what repentance looks like. She repented. She was restored. Her heart was made new. And she wanted to say thank you and honor her Lord and Savior who did this. I want you to picture this. Knowing very well that the Pharisee would despise her, she went straight to Jesus. And at the sight of Jesus, the floodgates of emotion opened. The dam broke. All those emotions, all that truth, that she was a wretched sinner, that her past life was so marred by sin, that she was so unworthy of grace. But here... She was forgiven and facing the one who gave her hope. And so blessed by his love for her, so moved by his mercy, she could not contain herself. The heart water, as Luther wrote, flowed so profusely that the word in Greek has to do with rain. She rained down tears. What a heart of love for a merciful Savior. And as she wept, her tears began to drip profusely on the feet of Jesus. And as she looked upon the feet of her Savior, she noticed they were dirty. So she undid her hair, an act of impropriety, and even a little suspicious, and began to wipe his feet. She kissed them. This is the same word that the father of the prodigal son did with his son, kissed and hugged, catafilio, and lathered them with expensive perfume, marking one possible tool of her trade, was an alabaster flask. Enough of this trade. She was a slave to Jesus now, and the house was filled with the smell of her worship. Possibly this would have been one of the most awkward meals any guest had ever seen. And yet, we hear no voices. That is, no one questioned the integrity of Jesus. They did not ask, why is this woman so close to Jesus? Why so comfortable? Simon does not go there. He did not question the integrity of Jesus. Why? Because this Pharisee knew, as did the rest, that Jesus was beyond reproach. He's a holy man, and that much he knew. His only recourse was to utter under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him 
and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Every cell in the man's heart was filled with contempt and disdain for this woman. He could not see past his self-righteousness. He was pious, law-abiding, God-fearing Pharisee. How could Jesus be even remotely what he says he is if he entertains this wretched woman and know what the wretched woman did? There are at least three things you need to know about the perilous road of self-righteousness. Self-destructs, leads people into eternal darkness, and self-righteous people don't realize how precious and how desperate their need is for mercy. There's no room in a self-righteous heart for circumspection. You know that I'm equally as broken. I should be there. No affection for Christ because his heart is self-justifying. He had decided in his heart he was blameless. Such an idea becomes an unscalable wall, cold and austere. It doesn't let the warmth and grace of God come and touch your heart. It's blocked. Self-righteous people don't realize God's love is unconditional. No, there there, there are conditions, they think. The condition is righteous life, that is, the condition for God's love. And this thought, when it grows, becomes the stock of legalism in the heart. The heart will say, God loves me because I obey his commands. Do what is right. Keep myself free from other sinners. In fact, the thought goes, I deserve God's love. This self-righteous, this legalism, you understand, is poison in the church of Jesus Christ. It makes God's love so weak and so impotent, so unattainable. Self-righteous people don't realize how harsh their own judgment are on others. Someone who is self-righteous views himself as morally superior, just a little bit better than the rest, will be harsh in his judgment on others, judgmental, unforgiving. Unkind in the way that they reproach people. They will lay an expectation. Why? Because they think they have it all together. But their self-absorbed hearts are cold and unsympathetic to the brokenness in others. My heart grieves for those who think themselves better than others and are quick to condemn, slow to show love, and slow to forgive, I fear for their lives. I fear for the church they attend. And my heart grieves even more when I see those seeds of self-righteousness begin to sprout in my own heart. God forbid that we display the Simon-like pride and find ourselves full of bitterness and judgmental to the broken around us. Jesus turns to this man, doing him a great service, and provides a picture of why she loves him 
so much. The math is simple. The argumentation sound. The picture is clear. If one of you had your 300,000 mortgage paid off today after missing a payment by someone, and on the same day you had an entrance fee to, say, the Ancaster Fair paid by another person, to whom would you be more thankful? The guy who paid your mortgage, of course. The bigger debt in sins that's forgiven, the greater the joy. She was forgiven much because she knew the magnitude of her sin. And now she loved even more. Have you experienced this? Then Jesus exposes Simon's heart. He's saying to Simon, you should understand now why she did what she did. But you, for your part, have shown me nothing but contempt, bordering hatred. And he does the comparative in verses 44 and 45. You did nothing to welcome me and show me the gift of hospitality. Nothing. No water for my feet. No kiss. No anointing. Nothing. No, Simon? No, Simon did not read Rosario's book. He had another title in his mind for his book. Self-righteousness is the lock that keeps out sinners by Simon the Pharisee. But Jesus was there to show mercy, and he did. In the second place, we read about Jesus confronts a broken and crushed soul. Have you ever walked into a space where you know you don't belong? Where no one's saying anything, but you're judged from the top of your hair to the bottom of your feet because of something you have done in the past. That's this woman. Or maybe you have read the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, by Ed Welsh. It's a fear of man that destabilizes our faith. We begin to think we need man and his approval more than we need God. We love man more than God. It's a form of idolatry. But consider exhibit one, the fearless, redeemed sinner. This woman had no such fear. Full stop. She loved her Savior more. He was so much more to her than anyone else. She ignored all the eyes of judgment, went to the one who had made all things new for her, her Savior. That's a word for the church today. Your salvation is not found in the approval of men or women, but in the person of Christ alone. Do not let anything interfere with your seeking Christ's face. Go to him boldly. And yet, she's in a very vulnerable spot. And Jesus knew that. And this is what he didn't do. He did not turn her away or show any irritation for her actions. That's not our Savior. You come as you are. He's not questioning your worth to see if you're worthy enough to kiss his feet, pour out your love, 
weep over your sins and his grace. You're unworthy, but he gives you worth. He says, I love you unconditionally. You are my child. Remember, you hurting saint, that when you come to Jesus, he will never despise or reject you. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. He's merciful Savior. Please, don't forget that. He does not lay guilt on her, her question, her integrity. He didn't say, ah, remember your sins. There are many. You might be tempted again. You're a sinner, remember? No. He removes the guilt. He releases us from the bondage of past sin. That's what grace does. He sets us free. He receives his children in love when they come to him in repentance. We've sung the song, His Mercy is More. It's a kind of a theme song for the Mercy Church. Listen to the first stanza. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's what he does. That's our Savior. He does exactly what she needs him to do. Forgive her. We've already spoken about this, but I want to add that Jesus repeats the words because of their importance. They need to ring in our ears every moment of the day because of their importance. We wake up in the morning. We're forgiven. We traverse the 10,000 steps of our day and we're forgiven. We retire at night as forgiven saints. And all that comes at a cost. But not to us or the woman. I don't know if this woman knew the unbearable weight of these words. Your sins are forgiven. I sometimes fear we do not understand their weight either. The sins that were forgiven didn't just dissipate into thin air. No, it went from one account to another, one ledger to another. Her account was clean. Christ was becoming full. He would have to pay for these sins. These words, you understand, are etched in blood. He uttered them knowing the value of each syllable. His blood was payment for her sins, his life the cost. Was she there at the cross? Did she weep then? Did she know that her sins, which were many, he bore by him on the cursed tree? Did each one to his last breath? Do you know? But do you know what it cost your Savior to say, my child, your sins are forgiven. He confounds the populace is our third point. The crowd may have known, have grown in number over this exchange, and they ask, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? They should have known the answer. This is not a rhetorical question. But I ask, but I ask, do you know him? Notice that this woman left, is left nameless. No, she isn't Mary Magdalene either. She appears in chapter 8 in a different context. She's nameless in part because she represents all who have sinned and come to Christ for forgiveness. I do not know where you are in your walk with Christ this, e- this afternoon. There may be some today that have never experienced the joy of thanking Jesus for pouring out their heart to him, allowing tears to fall to the floor over the truth that he has saved your wretched soul. Maybe for years now your life has been characterized by self-righteousness. You have felt you have done all the right things and others don't really live as holy a life as you do. I caution you, do not drink from the poison well of legalism. Admit your pride, your arrogance, your sin, and turn to Jesus. Pray that you understand the boundless mercy of God in the work of Christ. Oh, for the Spirit of God to soften your heart and for you to weep over your sins and worship with the same tears that this woman worshipped. Jesus turns to the woman in his last utterance. Your faith has saved you. Without faith, you cannot please God. You need to believe that Jesus is your merciful, merciful Savior. Then he says, go in peace. And you can. The peace, the shalom of God, the peace that says all is well with my soul. I'm right with God and I have Jesus on my side. It's that peace that gives you a bounce in your step, allows you to share it abroad. It is that peace that says, though my sins are many, his mercy is more. Amen.